The Cold Embrace by Mary Elizabeth Brandon. He was an artist. Such things as happened to him happened sometimes to artists. He was a German. Such things as happened to him happened sometimes to Germans. He was young, handsome, studious, enthusiastic, metaphysical, reckless, unbelieving, heartless. Being young, handsome and eloquent, he was beloved. He was an orphan under the guardianship of his dead father's brother, his uncle William, in whose house he had been brought up from a little child, and she who loved him was his cousin, his cousin Gertrude, whom he swore he loved in return. Did he love her? Yes, when he first saw it. He soon wore out this passionate love, how Fredbear, a wretched sentiment. It became at last in the in the selfish heart of the student, when his golden door, when he was only nineteen, and just returned from his apprenticeship, great painter at Antwerp, they wandered together the most romantic outskirts of the city, rosy sunset by holy moonlight, or bright and joyous morning. How beautiful a dream! They kept a secret from William, as he was the father's ambition of a wealthy suitor for his only child, a cold and dreary vision. Beside the lover's dream. So they were trod, and standing side by side when the dying sun, a pale rising moon, divided the heavens. Divided the heavens. He puts a betrothal ring upon her finger, a white and taper finger, whose slender shape he knows so well. Ring is for the one. A massive golden serpent. His ring tail and his mouth, a symbol of eternity. If it been his mother's, he would know it amongst a thousand. If he were to become blind tomorrow, he would select it from almost a thousand by touch alone. He places it on a finger. They swear to be true to each other, forever and ever, through trouble and danger, sorrow and change, in wealth or poverty. Father needs, must, must needs, he won to consent to union by and by, for they were now betrothed. Death alone could apart them. But the young student was scoffer at revelation, yet the enthusiastic adorer, the mystic, asks, Can death apart us? I would return to you from the grave, Gertrude. My soul would come back to be very be near my love, and you, you, if you died before me. The cold earth would not hold me from you, me. If you loved me, you would return again. Those fair arms would be clasped around my neck, as they are now. As you told him, a hollier light, and her deep blue eyes, and had ever shone in his. You told him that the dead would die at peace. If God are happy in heaven, and cannot return the troubled earth, and it is only the suicide. The lost wretch on whom sorrowful angels shut the door of paradise, so unholy spirit halts the footsteps of the living. First year of betrothal is past, she is alone, so he has gone to Italy and commissioned some rich man to copy Raphael's Tenientes Galliados, Gary Florence. He has gone to win fame, perhaps, but is not the least bitter, but is not the least bitter. He is gone. Of course, her father misses his young nephew, who had been as a son to him. 
He thinks his daughter's sadness no more. A cousin should feel for cousin's absence. In the meantime, the weeks, the months pass. Love writes, often at first, then seldom. Seldom. Alas, not at all. How many excuses she vents for him. How many times she goes to the distant little post office for which she's to dress his, his letters. How many times she hopes only to be disappointed. How many times she despairs only to hope again. But her despair comes at last. Will not be put off any more. The rich suitors appears unseen. Her father is determined. She to marry at once. The very day's fixed, the 15th of June. Date seems to be burnt into her brain. The date, ridden in fire, dances forevermore before her eyes. The date shrieked by the furries, turns continually in her ears. But there is time yet. It is the middle of May. There is time for a letter to reach him in Florence. There is time for him to come to Booswick, to take her away and marry her, in spite of her father, in spite of the whole world. The days and weeks fly by. He does not write. He does not come. It's a deed in spare which usurps her heart will not be put away. It's the 14th of June. The last time she opens, goes to the little post office. The last time she's asked this, she asks the same, she asks her question. They give her the last time. The jury answer no letter. The last time tomorrow is the day appointed for the bridal. Her father will hear no entries. A rich suitor will not listen to her prayers. She will not be put the will not be put off a day, an hour, tonight alone in his hers, this night, which she may employ as she will. She takes another path than that which leads home. She hurries through subway streets, the city, out onto Lonely Bridge where he and her, she had stood so often in the sunset, watching this rose-coloured light glow, fade and die upon the river. He returns to Florence, received her letter, that letter bloated with tears, entreating, despairing. He had received it, but he loves her no longer. A young Florentine who has, was, has sat to him, I sat to him for a model, had bewitched his fancy, the fancy which had made him stood in place of the heart. Gertrude had been half forgotten. She had been a rich shooter, good, let her marry him. She had a rich shooter, let her marry him. Better for her, better for far for himself. He no wished to fit her himself with a wife. He had he not his ways, eternal bride and changing mistress. Thus he thought it wise to delay journey Buswick, so that he could should arrive after when the wedding was over, arrive in time to salute the bride. The vows, the mystical fancies, belief in his turn, even after death, the embrace of his beloved, oh, gone out of his life, made away forever, those foolish dreams of his boyhood. So on the 15th of June, he enters Buswick, by the very bridge on which she stood, the, st the stars looking down on her the night before, draws across the bridge, and down by the water's edge, a rough, great rough dog on his, heel, on his heels, smoke through his short 
Muscum quite curling in blue wreaths, fantastically the pure morning air. He is, has his rough stretch book under his arm, attracted now, then by some object that catches his artist's eye, stops to draw a few weeds and pebbles on the, on the river bank. There was a crag on the opposite shore, group of polloid widows in the distance. When he done, had done, he admires his drawings. Drawing shuts his stretch book, empties his ashes from his pipe, he feels his tobacco pouch, sings and refrain of grey drinking soul. Calls to his dog and smokes again and walks on. Suddenly he opens his sketchbook again. This time, that which attracts him is a group of figures. Oh, what is it? It's not a funeral. There are no mourners. It's not a funeral. A corpse lying on a rude bier, covered with his old sail, carried between two bearers. It's not a funeral. The berries of fishermen, fishermen in their very everyday garb. About a hundred yards of him, they lay, they rest their burden on the bank. One stands ahead of by your bayer, ever throws himself down at the foot of it. And thus they form the perfect group. He walks back two or three paces, lets his point of sight, begins to stretch of a hurried line. He finishes, before they move, he hears their voices. Though he cannot hear their words and wonders what they can be talking of, presently he walks on and joins them. There were corpses here, there, my friends, he says. Yes, a corpse watched ashore an hour ago. Drowned? Yes, drowned. A young girl, very handsome. So his eyes are always handsome, says the painter. Then he stands for a little while, idling, smoking, and meditating, looking at his sharp outline of corpse, and stiff folds out, folds of rough canvas covering. Life is such a golden holiday for him. Young, ambitious, clever. It seems as though sorrow and death could have no part in his destiny. Last, he says, that as his poor, this poor side, so to say, so handsome, he could like, would like to make a sketch of her. He gives the fisherman some money. They offer to remove the silk off the covers of features. No, he would do it himself. He lifts a rough course where wet canvas from her face. What face? A face that shone on the dreams of his foolish boyhood. A face which was once the light of his uncle's home, his cousin Gertrude, he betrothed. He sees in one glance, while he draws one breath, that the rigid bone features, the marble arms, the hands crossed on the cold bosom, on the third finger, on the left hand, the ring which had been his mother's, Golden servant, a ring with which he would have come blind, he could select from a thousand others, a touch alone. But he is a genius, a metaphysician. Physician, grief, true grief is not for such as he. His first thought is flight, flight anywhere out of this that accursed city, anywhere far from the brink of that hideous river, anywhere away from that remorse, from remorse, anywhere to forget. He's miles and road that leads away from Brunswick before he knows that he's walked a step. Then when his dog lies down panting at his feet, he feels now exhausted. He himself sits down upon a bank to rest. How the landslide spins around and around, 
his dead lines, while his murmuring sketch of the two fishermen, a canvas-covered bear, glares redly at him out of the twilight. Lars was sitting a long time by the roadside, idly playing with his dog, idly smoking, idly lounging, looking as any idle light, hardly travelling student might look. Yet all this while acting, after the morning scene, in his, in his burning brain a hundred times a minute, at last he grows a little more composed, tries to think of himself, as he, apart from it, cousin suicide. Apart from that, he was no worse off than he was yesterday. Genius has not gone. The money he had earned at Florence still lined his pocket book. He was his own master, free to go wherever he would. And while he sits at the roadside, trying to separate himself from the scene that morning, trying to put away the image of the corpse covered with a damp canvas cell, trying to think of what he should do next, where he should go, be to be furthest away from the Brunswick and remorse, old diligence coming rumbling and jingling along, he remembers it. He goes from Brunswick to Asseville Chapel. He whistles a dog, shouts to the politician to stop. And springs into the coupe. During the whole evening, through the long night, though he does does not once close his eyes, he never speaks a word. When morning dawns, the other passengers awake, begin to talk to each other. He joins in the conversation, tells them these artists going to go co co Cologne and then to Antwerp with copy Rubenesses, great pictures of Quinton Malles Museum, Memed Office. They talked and laughed boisterously, and when he was talking loud, laughing loudest, passionate older and graver than the rest, opened a window near him and told him to put his head out. He remembered the fresh air blowing in his face, singing of the birds in his ears, that flat and the flat fields of roadside reading before his eyes. He remembered this, then falling in a lifeless heap on the floor with the diligence, the fever that keeps him for six long weeks on a bed, hotel at X. Like Chappelle. He gets well and accompanied by his dog, starts a foot for Cologne. This time, his former self once more. Again, the blue smoke from his short Mexican curls, upwards in the morning air. Again, he sings some old university drinking song. Again, stops here and there, meditating, sketching. He's happy and forgotten his cousin. And so on to Cologne. It is by the great of Friedel. He is standing with his dog at his side. It's night. The bells are just timed the hour. A clock has struck in eleven. Moonlight shine full upon. A magnificent pile over which the artist's eyes wonders absorbed in beauty of form. He's not thinking of his drowned cousin, for he's forgotten her and is happy. Suddenly someone, one, something from behind him, puts two cold arms around his neck and glass its hands on his breast. Yet there's no one behind him. For on the flames, bathed and bold by the moonlight, but only two shadows, his own, his dog, turns quickly round. There's no one, nothing to be seen in broad square but himself, his dog, and through his, though he feels, not see the cold arms, Clasped around his neck. It's not ghostly, this embrace, but it's plausible to touch. 
It cannot be real, for it is invisible. He tries to throw off the cold caprice. He clasps his hands in his own, tear them asunder, cast them off his neck. He can feel the long, delicate fingers, cold and wet beneath his touch. And on the third feet of the left hand, he can feel the ring, which is mother's, the golden southern. Ring which he'd always said he would know amongst a thousand, a touch alone. He knows it now. His dead cousins and cold arms are round his neck. His dead cousin's wet hands are clasped upon his breast. He asks himself if he is mad. Up, Leo, he shouts. Up, up, boy. And O'Fallon leaps to the sh- his shoulders. Boy pulls on the dead hands. Boy, And it a terrific howl that springs away from his master. The student stands in the moonlight, dead arms around his neck, a little dog, a distant moaning pitifully. Presently, watchman, alarmed by the howling of the dog, comes into the square to see what is wrong. The breath, the cold arms are gone. He takes the watchman home to the hotel. If him and gives his money, his gratitude, he could, he could have given the man half his, his little fortune. But ever come to him again, it's a brace of the dead. Tries never to be alone. He makes a hundred acquaintances and shares the chamber of another student. He starts up. He is left by himself in the public room. Or the inn where he's staying he runs to the street. But he knows his strange actions. Begin to think that he's mad. But in spite of all, he's alone once more. For one night in the public room being empty for a moment. When, when with some idle presence, he strolls in the street. The street is empty too. For a second time, he feels the cold arms around his neck. For a second time, he calls his dog. Emma's shriek shirks away from him, a piteous bare howl. After this, he leaves Cologne to a troubling foot, necessary now. His money is getting low. He's joined troubling hawkers. He walks side by side with labourers. He talks to every pot passioner, falls in with, and tries from morning to night to get company on the road. At night, he sleeps on a fire in the kitchen at the inn. Which he stops, but no, do but do what he will. He's often alone. It's now a common thing for him to feel the cold arms around his neck. Many months have passed since his cousin's death. Autumn, winter, early spring. Money is completely gone. His health is utterly broken. He's a shadow of his former self. He's getting near to Paris. He reached that city at the time of the carnival. At this. He looks forward in Paris at Carnival time. He need never surely be alone, never feel a deadly caress. He may even recover his life's gaiety, his lost health, once more resume his profession, once more unfeign the money by his art. How hard he tries to get over the distance that divides him from Paris. While day by day he grows weaker, he steps slower and more heavy. But there is an end at last. The long, dreary rows are past. This is Paris, which enters for the first time. Paris, which he dreams so much. Paris, whose million voices are so e- to exercise his black phantom. To him, to Paris, to him tonight, Paris seems one vast chaos of lights, music, confusion. Lights which dance before his eyes and not be still. Music rings in his ears and deafens him. Confusion makes his head whirl. Round and round, 
but in spite of all, he finds the opera house where there is a half born. He has enough money left to buy a ticket for mission, to hire a donamo to throw over his shabby dress. It seems only a moment after his entering the gates of Paris, he is very missed of all the vulgarity of the opera house ball. No more darkness, no more loneliness, the mere crowds shouting and dancing. A lone, lovely, barbaresque hanging on his arm. Boyish's gaiety, if you surely, his old light heartedness, come back. He hears the people round him talking of outrageous conduct. Some drunken student is to be him a point, but he's saying to him who had not moisted his lips since yesterday at noon. So even now he still not drink, will not drink. His lips are parched, his throat burning, cannot drink. Voice is thick and hoarse, his utterance is stink. But still he must be, best his old late hardness come back, and makes him so wildly gay. The little bird of Cruz is wearied out. An arm rests on his shoulder, heavy and lead. Our dancers, one by one, drop off. The lights of the candelabras, one by one, die out. Their decorations look pale and shadowy in a dim light, which is neither night nor day. A faint glimmer from the dying lamps, a pale streak of cold grey light, a newborn day creeping in through half open shutters. But this light the bright eyed Dabutan fades slow sadly. He looks at her in the face. Now the brightest of her eyes die out. Again he looks at her face. In the face. How white that face has grown again. Now his shadow face alone looks in his. Again they are gone. Bright eyes, the face, the shadow of the face. He's alone, alone, the vast saloon. Alone in a terrible silence he hears the echoes, no footsteps, in that dismal dance which has no music. No music about the beating of his breast. Oh, cold arms around his neck. They whirl him round. They will not be flung off or cast away. He cannot do no more escape from the icy gas. And he can escape from death. Looks behind him, is nothing but himself, a great empty saline. He can feel death, cold, death like, but now palpable. The long slender fingers, a ring which was his mother's. He tries to shout, but he has no power in his burning throat. The silence of places all only broken by the echoes of his own footsteps in the dance, on which he cannot extricate himself. Who says he is no partner? Her cold hands are blast from his breast. Now he does not, sh- now he does not shun their care, caress. No, no more poker. He drops down dead. He drops down dead. The lights all out. And half an hour after, the good drowned arms come in with a lantern. See, the house is empty. They're fallen, followed by a great dog. They have found seated howling on the steps of the theatre. Near the principal entrance, he stumbles over. A body should die from want of food, exhaustion, and breaking of a blood vessel.